welcome to the Ava podcast and my guest today is David Tenson. David is a poet. He also has a degree in organizational leadership and uh, has worked with a non-profit called LeaderHeart from 2016 to 2020 and he's produced materials to assist parents and children with their remote, relational and emotional and spiritual challenges um, and I'm so happy to have him here today. David, welcome. Thanks John, great to be with you across the vast pond. Yeah, as you can tell, folks, that is not a British accent nor an American accent that David has. <laughs> so where are, you, yeah. where are you from, David? Yeah, so I'm from the east coast of Australia, where most most of the population lives in a state called Queensland, and in particular, um, an area of, of Queensland called the Sunshine Coast. And is it sunshine and coasty? Yes, it is. It's, there's uh, gorgeous beaches and Oh, stop it. And a lot of sunshine. <laughs> it's, it is paradise, I, I must say. It's, uh, I haven't been to the East Coast. I've, I've been to Melbourne and Canberra, but I haven't been to the, okay. right to the East Coast. Yeah. Well, if you've, if you've travelled north in your car 14 hours, you'd, 15 hours, you'd reach us. So, yeah. so you're north yeah. of Brisbane? North of Brisbane, one hour north, yep. Yeah. Oh, it's not too yeah. far north. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great location. Yeah, wonderful. Sounds beautiful. But it is. You haven't been writing poetry for that long, David, have you? No, not not especially not. Just kind of on a daily or weekly, regular basis. Uh, I found an old scrapbook a little while ago of um, poems I wrote in school. A lot of us. Oh wow had to do poetry in school. Um, I heard, I learned of a term called metrophobia, which is a fear of poetry. Really? And, uh, <laughs> yes, it's true. Wow. <laughs> uh, and so that often occurs when you've, it's kind of been shoved down your throat by a, maybe an English teacher at school or something like that, right? Okay. Uh, I don't know what it's like in Scotland. but um, Yeah, it's pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah. It's not that strong here. I hear it's more common in uh, in Great Britain than it is in Australia. But uh, I I wrote bits and pieces, John, um, but started seriously uh, a few years ago on the other side of, of a breakdown and in a recovery season. And, um, and I haven't stopped. Yeah, <laughs> it was one of those things that um, I started. I put some some of my works on social media and um, people liked it. So that's a whole story, but I've wow. now published the two books, The Wrestle, which was published last year and just recently released. So I wrote you a poem, which is this one or the one on the poster there. Um, <laughs> and so that's the, um, that's the latest collection, which is the, they're a little different, but um, and I'm writing most days um, oh. if I feel inspired to write. Or yeah. I, I see some. Of, I, I obviously follow you on social media, so I see some of the things that you, you put up, and um, some of it's encouraging, some of it's thought provoking, but mm. but all of it's good. So thanks, I encourage you that that I, I really like what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, but you weren't always a poet, though, were you? In terms of career, no. So I have, um, as you mentioned, I, 
I've got a degree in organizational leadership and a research degree on the other side of that as well. And I did that over the last few years as I, as I was writing my last book, I was writing a thesis at the same time. Wow. And, uh, and, um, but before that, I spent around eight years traveling itinerant um, as an itinerant minister. So okay. preaching at different church communities um, and then doing a lot of work one-on-one with people, particularly church uh, leaders and ministry workers and their families uh, in, a, in a prayer ministry or prayer counseling yeah. um, support kind of role. So that's where my, um, partly where my burnout came from. That's where yeah. my rescuing tendencies found a, a place to feel valuable. Yeah. And that's where um, I, I met the most incredible people, um, got an insight, insight into church life across the world. I got to travel mm. to different countries. Um, at the same time, having three children and a wife at home, uh, figured it wasn't su- sustainable long term, so I had to make some yeah. some turns. But that's um, that's been part of my experience that I I do pour into some of my poems and um, and kind of leveraging John some of the same giftings as somebody who's empathetic and mm-hmm. we would we used to say a burden bearer that you you're yeah. able to bear another's burdens, yeah. which is uh, I think it's in Colossians or. Galatians talks about bearing one another's burdens yeah. and therefore you fulfill the law of Christ. And so, um, yeah, poetry was, has just been a more sustainable <laughs> way to um, keep using some of that gifting. And um, well, it's and interesting, isn't it? Because, because the poetry is when you're, when you're traveling like that and you know, I, I've been traveling for the last 10 years, um, different, different faith communities and, uh, churches and you pick all of this these things up but where do they go <laughs> hmm. you know do, do you find that the poetry is kind of a release for you in that as well as it, as well as creativity is there a release yeah, absolutely for yeah so when I started writing of course I, I predominantly I mean my last book is a bit of a, a different collection but my first book the wrestle um a lot of these poems were written kind of on the on the other side of this whole season of my life mm. and were a way for me to process and put in words and spaces and gaps the the experiences both we might say positive or negative um, of being able to find a place for all the the secondary trauma you pick up Mm. Uh, a place to process and make sense of the way that I had my being in those places, the mistakes that I'd made, the the pain that you can feel or disappointment you feel when you your body and everything in you gives way and you can't you can no longer do what you once did. Um, so there's grief and there's loss uh, kind of in these, in these words and um yeah and so poetry is just for me a, a language that a language of the heart you know 
it I, I didn't have to make sense of it as much as I was able to still put words against how I felt and the mystery of it and yeah. and leave it as it is, you know. Yeah. You know, as as we were saying, um you've not been writing poetry long and and in one of the passages I think it's in the wrestle. Um, you said poetry found me a few years ago. It wasn't via a book, but via a podcast interview with poet and philosopher David White. What hmm. what was it about that that captured you, David? Um, I so the the podcast was the On Being podcast with Krista yeah. Tippett, yeah. and um, it was a beautiful podcast. Was has gorgeous guests on and. Um, I, as part of some of my recovery and health, I used to go for a long walk most mornings. I'd like to say it was on the beach, but we, I didn't live within walking distance, but it was in the streets and the parks nearby. And uh, she didn't, she was interviewing him and I'd not, I didn't own a poetry book at the time. I did not, it was just not on my radar. And I heard him talking uh, and then, then he read a poem and then you talked some more and then he read another poem or he recites them. He's exceptionally good at reciting and memorizing lots and lots of poems. Oh. And it just struck me. And I, re I, I remember the street that I was in the house I was in front of and I rewound it and listened again and again, and something inside me, uh, it was like a pilot light lit up, um, and a flame bursts forward and I thought I, I, I have to listen to more. And so I just binged listening to a lot of his poetry and then anybody he mentioned, I didn't know who Mary Oliver was. I didn't know who John O'Donoghue was. John O'Donoghue, I'm not sure if you're familiar yeah, with him. Enough. He and David yeah. were dear friends. And uh, so listening to this and it just, it was the language I needed and uh, in my imitation, I thought, well, I'll write some poems myself. Oh. And we went on holidays. Somebody blessed us with a week away at a, um, at a resort, actually, kindly. And so I went on more walks, listened to more, and just came back and wrote. And it oh. just was really important for me to do. So, um, so John, that's how it that's how it works. And David does, David White says this, said a phrase during that, I think it was during that interview that we often find ourselves, our we find our future selves in a stranger. Mm. And, and the more I thought about it, I'm like, the irony was for me, the stranger was him. You, you know what it's like, you, I'm sure most of us can look back at lives where we, we met somebody and we were thinking I could be like that. Like, that's what I want to do. That's, that's what, that's where I want to be. That's, that's my next course. I need to, you have one of those follow me moments, right? Um, oh, yeah. I wonder if the disciples had that in Jesus because there were plenty of rabbis around at the time. And he was like, Hey, they, he saw himself in them and they must have seen something of themselves uh, in him enough to say. Fascinating like way to 
to, to think of that, David. Yeah, like I'd never, I'd never thought about that because yes, I've had that experience where I think that's what I could be, that's what I want to yeah. be, that's what I want to do. But I never thought about that with the disciples seeing Jesus. And neither did I. It just came out now. To be honest, I thought <laughs> <laughs> that's fresh for your podcast. That's, that's a fascinating uh, thought that they saw Jesus. I thought, could I be like him? Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. There must have been, right? Because we yeah. know that some people turned away. Um, and there was that constant invitation. Of course, I have no relationship with David White or anything, but it, w- it was enough. Um, musicians would have it artists would have it wow they see a particular artist they see a particular dance artist they'll see a music artist and they'll be like that's the style of music I need to that's the style of dance that's the art I want to do and for me it was the, the the poetry and the more I looked into it the more I mean I just didn't realize that a third of the scriptures were poetry you know listen to some interviews with Eugene Patterson who wrote yeah. Eugene the Peterson message. who wrote the message and he he was he adored poetry he it was his thing he memorized psalms he read poetry all the time mm. um, half of the psalms are psalms of lament so I I began to think too that that's what I needed to lean in and I'd come from a a movement in a stream of Christianity which as I say in the book was, quite um there were experts on preaching and presenting the god of the breakthrough Mm. and at that time i needed the god of the breakdown and so for me that was i could find that in the psalms you know Um, and i could see that it was allowed and i can see that it held great value so as i pen some down and i publish them john on social media people people like them oh. and then i ran into uh william paul young who wrote the shack yeah and um that's another kind of piece in this puzzle but I went to a conference. He was there and a friend who's a pastor was hosting him. And I said, look, I'll, I'll fly down to Melbourne. I don't want to preach. I just want to turn up and hang out. And my dear friend said, of course, man, just come along. You can stay at my place and we'll collect Paul together. And so it was a, a, a kind of a little gathering, a few hundred people. And my friend said at one of the breaks, this is, listen, I know you said you won't preach, but could you just pray us out before lunch after the session? And while he and Paul, sorry, you were ambushed. (laughs) I was ambushed. Yeah. And I was like, I can do that. You know, I used to preach a lot on the blessing and I said, I can do that. But I wrote a poem, which is the opening poem to the wrestle, which is a, a blessing for the heart journey, you know, that one. And, um, and I wrote that like within minutes when they were talking and then I read it before we went to lunch. And, uh, you know, it says the word assholes in it, which got everyone's attention. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Paul, Paul said, when did you write that? I said, I oh, just now, he said, do you have more? I'm like, yeah, I have some more. So, um, we just stayed in contact and he went around in his travels and found my poetry was a great 
um, I don't know, companion to his stories and messages. And yeah. so long story short, he did emailed me at the start of last year and said, can we please put these in a book? Wow. And, uh, and so his encouragement and, and help and some of his contacts were, were the energy I needed to at least believe in myself and my craft enough to realize that um, we can do this. And so that's that's also why he read the audio book. So the audio book is he narrated that. He asked if he could wow. <laughs> if he could audition for that. I said, yeah, of course you can. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So um, that's how that started. So well, I think that that's something really important. You're saying you know someone you felt someone was behind you, and I, and I know Paul's not. He doesn't think of himself as anything. I know that, but but he's well known in Christian circles because of the yeah. shack. And to have someone like that say, "These are good. You should do something with these." It it kind of gives you that little push, doesn't it? To think, well, it maybe was. people might like them. <laughs> yeah, somebody had um, sent me a podcast that he was on not long after he'd visited Australia, and he said, "You should listen to this." He reads one of your poems, and I was like, "Are you serious?" And so he did, and then. Wow. A lot of the interviews he would go to or somebody would tag me or all of a sudden I'd get all these friend requests and I'm like, why am I getting all these friend requests from San Francisco? And then I've discovered he's been there and somebody said, I read, Paul read one of your poems at this wow. conference we were at. So that's, that was, uh, that was the encouragement uh, that I needed. So isn't it is interesting? Well, you're right, is, I mean, he wouldn't think about it, but mm -hmm. he just believes in people. Because... I wrote a lot when I was when I was in my twenties, uh, early twenties, late teens, early twenties. But uh, many rejections from poetry magazines and all these different things. That, but I didn't have anyone like that to say, "Hey, these are actually good," possibly because mm -hmm. they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they weren't. That's very <laughs> humble of you uh, to say yeah, that. Maybe but, they weren't. I haven't. Uh, I mean, the strange thing is, I didn't. I haven't submitted mine to yeah. magazines for two reasons, John. Number one, some of the rules are really strict, right? Like it yeah. will be unpublished, can't be published, can't be anywhere, and you're basically handing this magazine sole sole publishing rights to yeah. a poem that you've sometimes paid to submit. And I was like, man, I'll publish them in my own book you know i've self-published everything with yeah. a print on demand so that the game has changed the, the publishing game's changed well, a bit yeah. too john you know that over yeah. the years over the last it's still, years it's very different <laughs> it's still a, it's still a lot of work but the uh yeah. the, it's a it's a capital of time and passion and energy not having a garage full of books you hope hope will shift and yeah. sell yeah well that's great. I'm, I'm glad that Paul suggested it. Do you want me to read uh, that, was, that poem out for you? That would be wonderful, yes. I thought it would be cool. We might as well read some. Uh, so this is that poem that I wrote. It, I open and close the wrestle with this, with this poem, a blessing for the heart journey. Today, fellow fallers, rescuers, recoverers, winners, losers, famous and infamous, I bless you. The runners and the lame, the bankrupt and the billionaire, the saint 
and the sinners, the lost and lonely, I bless you. I bless you with knowing that the journey of a thousand steps will be paved by potholes, sinkholes, assholes, and whatever it takes to make you whole because you are human. I bless you with knowing that the invitation to face the world with an unveiled face may be done at your pace or never at all because it's an invitation. But know this, by love and choice, Trinity's unmasked face shines upon you and is gracious to you. Trinity lifts up their faces towards you and offers you peace because you belong. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It needs a moment to sink in, doesn't it? Sailor moments. Yeah. 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 One of the things that you, you say, David, is that something that helped you was a book that your wife brought you home from the library. Um, mm. There's a chapter in it that helps you to see the codependent parts of your soul had got you to where you, where you were at that point. But, but the next part of your journey, they had to be dismantled. And just, mm -hmm. Can you enlighten us a little bit on that? What? Yeah, the book was by, uh, it was just a book from the local library. Um, it wasn't from the religious section or anything like that. And she borrowed it and it just sat with all the other books we borrowed. It was a new release. <laughs> it was called Letting Go of Good by Andrea Mathias. And uh, it turns out she, she does have a faith and she mentions Christ a few times in the book. And it's all about having good if we, if we want to be good. The problem is who sets the standard in the bar of what good is. So she's a therapist. In the book, um, a few things happened because my wife was about to return it. I said, I'll flick through it. You have to understand at the time I'm recovering from some pretty severe burnout. I'm, I'm useless around the house anyway. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what the future was holding. I just knew that there was, there was a few things coincided. All the compassion fatigue that I suffered just spending too many hours trawling through people's problems and not enough supervision and rest mm. um, having three school-aged children um, this was our form of income as well uh, and, and that's, um, a, that's another pressure entirely oh, different it's, pressure it is it's a huge pressure so uh, I read this book and I open up to this chapter and um, on, on empathy and empaths and she uses this story of a young boy called David who grew up in a family and his, his parents didn't know that he was that empathetic, that he picked up things around him, that he was able to feel what other people were thinking and, sorry, feel what other people were, were feeling or maybe and not thinking about even the things that they were unaware of. And oh. I'm like, that's me. And you used my name. And so I, I was hooked and I read it and she talked quite a lot about um, codependency, mm. rescuing. And I'd done a bit of work around that for a bit about myself and clients, but I delved into that. 
And then also during that time, I was getting some prayer ministry and counselling myself and had what would, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for about 25 years, but some of the encounters and experiences I had in those therapy sessions were it left an indelible mark on my soul mm. and my spirit that I said to somebody the other day, if, if I never read an ounce of scripture again in my life or was, was stripped from every Christian community, I wouldn't care. Like Jesus, I encountered, I encountered Jesus time and time again, his kindness his nonviolent nature, his patience, his love, his desire to restore and to go at the pace that I was willing to go at. All the things. Um, so that that was some of my experience during that time as well. And um, in the midst of that, I realized I was codependent. I was rescuing all these people. And... Um, and the book kind of helped me along with that as well. Mm. Um, in my next book, I'll probably talk about it a bit more and share some poems that I've written on some of those. Um, I guess deeper, deeper things. <laughs> it's always a challenge if you write poetry as personal as this, which does resonate with a lot of people once it's published, but you, for those that are listening that have written and published or work in the arts, you'll know some of the dichotomy between something that's deeply personal to you becomes a product, you know, that, that sells or is marketed or goes out there. And you just almost have to remember, it's not a zero sum game. Now that I've shared it, it doesn't matter. You kind of have to see it like a candle that something lights other candles. Sometimes you're still working through it. (laughs) I am still working through it. Absolutely. Let me read you one of those poems, if if you like, and I can give you. Um, so the chapter in the wrestle is on. It's called on on boundaries, mm. and um, uh, okay. So this one is called the rescuer. <clears throat> And it really does kind of tie into what my experiences was like as I was sitting and counselling people. When I'm present to you, to your stories, to your trials and triumphs, I'm not with me. I'm with you. When we are navigating the tear-fed seas of your traumatic tales, I'm not at home. I'm out, out with you. When together we trek through recall and reason only to find ourselves lost again, it's a dark march back to me. Many times now I've strayed far from me, far from familiar, and I've hitchhiked through healing. I've stumbled through dark heartlands looking for myself, attempting to untangle my story from yours, attempting to untangle my story from yours finding and binding the armor I gave away when your vulnerability took you too close to the edge of yourself. So please pardon me 
Forgive me when I pull back, fall down, collapse, go missing and need help, for I am a recovering rescuer. And as one who limps with aid after having hip touched by angel, I am learning now how to move with strong boundaries and fierce refusals. Mm-hmm. I am learning to walk without leaving myself behind. I am learning to walk without leaving myself behind. Yeah. Yeah, when I read that, that stuck a note with me. <laughs> Did it? How's, how yeah. so? Oh, because I, 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 I'm a rescuer. Uh, mm. And if I'm not careful, like you say, you, you lose yourself in someone else's problems. You know, you yeah. saw myself as the answer to, to, to people's problems, you know. Yeah. And of course, having trained as a minister, um, you're taught that you're the answer to everyone's problems. <laughs> It's true. But it really fed into that whole, and some of that stems from childhood. You know, I, I felt that I had to rescue my mom. Mm. You shared before the recording one of the poems in my in my recent book spoke to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I never realized that a lot of my rescuing throughout life and ministry was actually mm-hmm. still that little boy trying to rescue his mom. Yeah. That was, that was the roots of it. And I'm, I've worked through a lot of that, still working through, but when I read that poem, I thought, oh yeah, I recognize that. <laughs> that, that is so familiar. <laughs> yeah. I find it's something I have to manage. I do hope I grow out of it, but, it's a it's a challenge, right? Because yeah. there there, are, there is a call for us to live with. Uh, I like how Richard Beck puts it with an eccentric identity and it something that's eccentric doesn't have you in the middle. Yeah, you know, and uh, and an eccentric identity where our self or our ego is on the edge. I think is what we're what we're called to live the, the chaotic type lifestyle and mm. where we are self-emptying. Um, for me, recovering from being a rescuer, the biggest part of the battle was recognizing that that's what I was. Yeah. And, and recognizing that that is not healthy for me. Because it, yeah. it goes completely against all of um, or to say, but against Christian teaching, you know, forget about yourself, just pour yourself out for others. And, but if there's nothing coming in at the other side, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, you said earlier, there were, there wasn't enough supervision and rest for you. Yeah. I didn't have that. I didn't have that. I didn't have it. I mean, and that gets practical, right, John, like to have supervision you need to start spending some of the own you, the money you've earned, or you need to begin to weave that into the cost. And now you need to charge for this kind of yeah. ministry handsomely. And you know, I would always prefer to buy clothes and shoes for my kids. 
then uh, and see their needs met. I, I eventually went to therapy um, and I'm still seeing a, a trauma therapist, you know, um, but mm. I think it was something a friend of mine in Northern Ireland said, he, he is a therapist, but I didn't want to go to a friend, you know. Yeah, um, but he, he said, you know, you have to measure up the, the investment that paying for a therapist is in your life. Mm. And you have to measure up whether you think you're worth that investment or not. And I was yeah. like, ouch. <laughs> yeah, and when I, was, when I looked at it, honestly, there was a part of me didn't think I was worth that investment. Mm. You know, um, but I know, I know. Thank God I that know he, he actually said that to me and made me think about it, you know. It's yeah. just when you're saying about spending the money, you know. Um, I know there was definitely that. Even my wife would say, come on, do it. But, of course, that's not what the codependent and rescue wants to hear either because there's a, your ego is in part fed by, by this. You're so used to that script where... Well, there's a others first. I, I'm not the needy one. <laughs> Correct. I'm yeah. the one that everyone's needs. <laughs> and I think beneath that too, John, I discovered in... And it's something I have to keep. I would say this to myself probably now still on a monthly or fortnightly basis. You're not to be the atonement mm. for these, for what's gone on here. Yeah. And part of my recovery and the repentance in my recovery to, to be more Christ-like um, but still allowing Jesus to be Christ <laughs> was for me to say, I'm sorry for placing myself as the atonement, as the solution, as the answer to this problem yeah. that I thought I needed to sacrifice myself and my life and my well-being and my family and my health and lay that all on the altar of another person's well-being and in doing so, I've supplanted, I've usurped your work. I Ultimately, there's a part of me, Jesus, that doesn't trust that you've got them or you've got me. Yeah. So I'll do it myself. Yeah. That's beneath that. And that was programmed in, like you, at a young age, different circumstances, but still there because... That's who doesn't want to be the rescuer? I mean, the the superhero mythology is still very strong. Yeah, this it's, is in, it's interesting you say that because in the book you speak about, and so I wrote your poem. You, mm. you say that it struck you when you were writing one of the po the poem that was personal to me, um, that you realised suddenly why superheroes in the comic books and movies always had dads who died when they were young. Yeah. And they became rescuers. <laughs> they did, right? I mean, yeah. you look through all the Marvel characters. I've, I've tried to do an audit. They're either aliens, dead, shot, uh, living in Valhalla. I mean, they're, they're elsewhere, you know. Um, Superman's sent away when he's a baby. Batman sees his dad murdered in front of him. Yeah. You know, Iron, Iron Man, Man Austin, with his aunt. Yep, Spider Man. Uh, who else is there? I mean, you go through it. The Black Panther in the in the recent 
things his father dies in in one of the episodes and then he meets him again thor his father dies again he meets him in the afterlife um and there's also that there's always this father wounds john yeah. um, and and disney put it in there because they know yep. they know the hero's journey they know the rites of passage they know the wound and the narrative for belonging identity and adventure and a returning home and coming into who you are includes a letting go of those things and coming into who you are. But very, very rarely ever is it even in finding Nemo, Nemo goes missing, you know? <laughs> I always, I always say that's the gospel in 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah. The boy who, get, who, who disobeys his dad and wanders off and his dad goes to rescue him and bring him home. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. How, how about, uh, do you want me to read that one for you from yes, the book? Please. All right. So, so for those that are listening for the first time, the, the wrestle I wrote a lot on my own um, personal journey. And, and there's a few in there that I wrote allegorically for others. So I wrote you a poem. I wrote 25 poems across January for based on stories people sent me of their life on Instagram of things that happened in their life so a few people wrote in quite early on and said um I I had to watch my um my father pass away and um and and had to be a witness to that and so um the stories the the poems in here are are written for other people and and based on their stories and so uh i'm gonna find it here in the uh okay so this is this is aptly called <laughs> to the one who as a child watched their father die slowly and some of the people wrote in their fathers had had stroke had cancer had a myriad of things. You did all a child can do in such a position. You wanted to play the healer, but were resigned to the role of witness, to the slowest ascent towards heaven's gate, watching the one you call dad robbed of life and years. So much faded slowly, dreams and hopes views of God too. Life showed you its hand, terribly fragile. I've always wondered why superheroes lose their dads in childhood, but it's no mystery to you. You watched the one who was supposed to be strong lose a long and painful battle, and you knew it would take grit beyond tears to carry this memory beneath your Bruce Wayne facade and avenge his death by choosing life every fragile day. Mm. Yeah. That's a very powerful, it's a very powerful thing. Consider it written for you john yeah, yeah. but I, I just i love that image of the the superheroes who lost their dads early you know because 
when that happens to you, you do want to be a superhero in a, in a, in a kind of way. You want to save everyone, you know. I mean, talk about being Christ-like. <laughs> you want to be the world's saviour. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, you do want to be the atonement. So you want to save everyone else, you know, as a kind of, it, it is, it's, it's like a kind of redemptive thing where, I, you know, I failed my dad or I failed my mom. So I, I can't fail this person. And like you say, it becomes, it leads you to a place of a real um, burnout and, and brokenness because yeah. you can't rescue the world, you can't save it. No. You know? And you no, can't you fix can't. other people's problems. No. Especially when we person is the problem. <laughs> we create our own. I think, I don't know when, when it happened for you, John, for me, um, when I say when it happened, when the revelation came that this was no longer a way that I could continue. For me, it did start to unravel in my late 30s and mm. around midlife um, when the tools that I'd used um, and made the best of, John, I guess that's the thing. Like we do the best with what we have to find our place in the world. And if that means the skills that you picked up trying to save the world gives you a place in the world for the next few decades, maybe provides an income, a sense of identity. We'll wrap ourselves around that. I heard somebody say that during childhood, we, we really are incredibly egotistical. It's part of our development. This also means that when bad things happen, because we're the center of the universe of our own universe, we tend to be the center of the blame as well, yes. or the sense of, of great responsibility. So the blessings being with my children too is now. And, you know, you always wish you knew it a bit earlier, but particularly now I will pick up on times that my children might, particularly my youngest just to keep peace because the two eldest are arguing like who gets to sit in, who doesn't want to sit in the middle he'll sit in the middle just to be a peacemaker just to be a peacekeeper i should say and at his own convenience with his own sore back even when it wasn't his turn oh, and this happened recently and i pulled him aside and i said hey listen you do not have to sit in the middle on the way home of this from this big trip because you sat here all the way there. And I know that you're just doing this because you don't like the others two arguing. And it's easier if you just sit in the middle. Hey, I said, that is not your job hmm. to make their life more comfortable at your own convenience and rescue and stop the fighting. That's not your responsibility. That's my and your mum's responsibility to manage that conflict, yeah. not yours. And he, he just started to cry and tucked his head into me and he felt seen and understood and he knew that. he. I caught him out, John. He's busted, really. I busted him in his rescuing tendencies, but in the best kind of way. Yeah. And, uh, and if that's a gift that I can give him, is the language and permission to not have to be the pseudo-parent to not have to rescue a situation, to not be a peace peacekeeper yeah. by 
being the atonement when it's not his job or responsibility, then then that's worth it, you know. Viva, that's so that's beautiful. It is. Yeah. It, We've been talking about when we were young and things, and I love the little story you told about uh, swinging in the Iron Gate at the supermarket and, and interrogating people walking past with their groceries. And you said your dad loves telling the story of a time you had a lady unpack entire two bags of groceries and answer every question you had about every single item she had bought. <laughs> um, but but you go on to talk about how that led into the whole faith thing when you began your faith journey and all the questions you had and and someone always had the answers. It was the pastors, it was the Christian bookstore, it was YouTube, it was, you know. Um, but then you said, and I love this, you said, but then things stopped adding up. What, how do you mean? I think what... Um... I think as part of our Christian development, John, we like like the development of childhood, right? You're born you, and a toddler will cling to anything that feels certain. And as part of your job or your role as a parent to give a sense of security and safety to your children, telling them things will be all right, even when they won't, you know, <laughs> uh, all that. I, I love the work that... Um, Fowler and did with Erickson's work and then um, there's a book called The Critical Journey that talks about how we, we have stages of faith. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm backing up a bit here to make my point. That's all right. Early on, early on in our faith journey, we, we generally cling to charismatic leaders and people who in our faith journey will give us a sense of rules and um, the way things will work and a sense of certainty, e.g., you know, if you tithe and you're faithful and you're giving to God, he'll look after you financially. We want or, the formulas, don't we? Do we want the formulas. And you know what? I don't, I, I assume it's just largely denial that we, we will overlook because of a confirmation bias when it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then if in the midst of that um, trauma and failure and things stop adding up and those formulas stop, stop working, after a while and after some time, we almost allow, I think we partly allow ourselves to just take stock and, and dare I say think critically, John, I think critical critical thinkings it's rather missing probably lacking a lot in faith it's it? it's hugely yeah. it's hugely lacking in a lot of faith circles is is, yeah. is basic critical thinking because people don't generally feel safe in our theology uh, and a lot of our church communities aren't aren't psychological safe and i say that from my organizational leadership it's also, degree it's also presented as um a lack of faith to think critically. Yeah, now it's all your fault. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's almost pre it's presented like unbelief. Yeah. And then unbelief then comes with the assumption that it's not allowed, that, you know, God's, God does not approve, it doesn't please him, and now we have an, a God who's angry if we don't believe him, and then he's 
punishing and then if something does go wrong but here's what i've discovered john everyone dies like you can be you can be the most faith-filled healing prophetic you know john g lake smith wigglesworth aa allen person but they're all dead john and everyone they prayed for is also dead like one day you die <laughs> like and they die so this this is almost this immortality myth and story we buy into um and what happened for me that i was kind of part of that but the but the 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 formulas stopped working the answers i gave were they they gave me were pat answers and i still ended up in in my occasion all of my children's births were traumatic particularly the last and my wife spiraled into postpartum depression which i, I talk about and so i wrote you a poem and um yeah that's that's amazing just, i love that poem oh thanks yeah. we're just we're just faced with life as kate bowler says is, is a chronic condition like <laughs> it just no one likes this word life and life abundant yeah that's it's true but we all get the same prognosis my old church used to have that as a huge banner across the back wall and it was even there during the funerals it was even there during the sicknesses it was even there during these dramatic times um so i say all that to say um My faith kind of went to my my journey and my walk with God went to another level when I just decided, okay, it's safe to lament. It's good to lament. This is a lost art. Forty seven percent of the psalms are lament lamenting psalms. Um good read through traditions. <laughs> sorry. And a whole book. Exactly. Like <laughs> somehow I think because of our um Anyway, I won't get into it philosophically, but there's a lot of things that have led to a lot of us shying away from that. And I, I sometimes I joke and I said, well, if you turn some of these lamenting psalms into song, nobody wants to sing these on a Sunday. We, we love the victory songs. We love the songs of ascent, right? Yeah. Interestingly, a lot of the songs that do really well and being from Australia, Hillsong is one of our largest kind of religious exports. Some yeah. of their top songs do involve narratives of things not going too well of being in troubled waters the allegories of um of of trouble and hard times it's it's cut this there's a there's a bit of an irony in there so all that said um i um just began to lean into what and and maybe dare dare a little more braver in a, in a brave way and just begin to write poems that were just raw and real and you know we're happy to say hey you know what things are shit and in the midst of this dung pile here's jesus you know we've just been through easter he harrowed hell there's no place that he is not and king david knew this the psalmist asaph knew this uh there's no no place that i'm not i'm reading a beautiful book now called love poems by god it's a collection from 
Uh, it's about 300 poems from the East and from the West, and I'm reading Thomas Aquinas and St. John of the Cross and others, and some of the poems are heart-breaking, wrenching, difficult poems, mm. and here they found the beauty of co-suffering God, John, who was there when you had to feed your father and brush his teeth as a little boy. He never leaves us like he is Emmanuel and that we can say that and we can sing that, but to experiencing to experience that, I think brings in a whole new freedom, but it also undoes a whole, you have to do a lot of undoing and then yeah. <laughs> a lot of forgiving. And then you continually have to live, I think, with a sense of long suffering for others who are now where, and now where you were maybe a decade ago, right? As yeah. Thomas Burton said that if the you of 10 years ago doesn't think the you of today is a heretic, you may yeah. not have grown in your faith. I love that quote from Merton. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting on that topic, David, you, because you, you combine some of this with your organizational leadership uh, training because you say that organizational change becomes destructive when it is coercive systems focus and then humane and then you go on to say change first requires a kind of deconstruction in order to make way for reconstruction i love that in the wrestle um, and a lot of people are speaking about deconstruction nowadays aren't they in faith and stuff um mm. which to be fair has become organizational it's become systems focused it's become dare i say it coercive even in a lot of the the, the structures um, and I, but I love the the, the way you, you don't just leave it at deconstruction. Mm. What you're saying is deconstruction should be making way for reconstruction, which is what you're talking about there. You know. Yeah, that's my hope. I, that's way. my hope. Yeah, that's that's my hope. I've had some pushback on that commentary. Things I've put on. YouTube and other places. It's always interesting that different people that consume different social media. But my 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 hope is, and where I see deconstruction done and done with a sense of intention for change and transformation, <clears throat> has to lead to some kind of reconstruction and and a friend of mine said during his because deconstruction is actually it's 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 not a faith term the faith communities borrowed something which is from another discipline but a friend of mine said you're actually you're never deconstructing any anything you say no to you've said yes to something else when you've pulled something down you're still creating something That's in good. its broken form so um my, and I haven't, I've got to do some more work around this. I've, I heard in a recent podcast with Bradley Jerzak, who I, I admire and, um, and, and endorsed this, uh, my, the book here has been um, a friend along the journey. He, he said, you, you know, we don't want to end up in nihilism. Like the churches, church and faith communities have been through these, these uh, forget the whole thing 
ever yeah. existed times before and it didn't it it's didn't end well. water, isn't it? <laughs> yeah it's both and i understand some people's experience is going to be very different and i, I honor that um but some it's a response to pain isn't it and trauma yeah it is yeah but for me i do say i do think that um if it's intentional and Okay, I'll say this much. Sometimes we're talking organizationally here and personally. Sometimes change uh, is is it is is an external force. So COVID is a classic external force, right? An external change force came upon us, and we had to change the way that we lived and adjusted. Yeah. It was a threat to some people's life, but to most people, it was a threat to their lifestyle. Different things, although some of us treated it like it was a threat to our life, mm. and uh, and for some people. Of course it was, but generally. So that's an external change. An internal change force might be something that you just decide bubbles up within you and you say, well, I'm going to change my job for no other reason or I'm going to pursue this or I'm going to do this. And so we we, we move it in an effective direction, sometimes external, sometimes internal. And I think the same is, and we need to always be aware of that with our faith. Sometimes there are external circumstances, but sometimes we go ahead and we do it internally as well. And I think if in the internal change is being made, if those, if the motivational, the fuel between behind something that is changed from the inside out, uh, if it's not examined, if, uh, if it's done flippantly, if it's done and being fueled by a lot of bitter and anger and unforgiveness, what's reconstructed? Um, is uh, is can be less effective <laughs> um, and more destructive, less beautiful um, than what was there before. Yeah. If I can say that much. So in change management, we have something called uh, Lewin's change management theory, which is really simple. It's something, they say, imagine an ice block that's frozen and then it's unfrozen and then you have to refreeze it. Mm. Uh, Richard Raw talks about living, if I'm right here, if you people want to reorganize their life, well, you, you have to go from organized to disorganized to reorganized. If you rearrange the books on your shelf, they all have to come down and be disorganized before you reorganize them make some great points that some people are born in disorganization, make great efforts to find a sense of organization and really push back on any change because it's taken them a long time just to, just to maybe turn up at church, just to have a faith in God. Even, even if you or I might think that's kind of maybe a destructive faith. It's like, I don't know this story. Like <laughs> I don't, I'm not here to, here to judge, but change however you look at it generally has these phases, life, death, and resurrection, sowing and reaping, the grain of sand falls to the earth and dies and raises up. So that this cycle is is built into, I guess, the universe of all change and transformation. And for that reason, change can be painful. And if it's internally, if you go, I really want to be transformed, I think it really is the power of the spirit that enables that within us and has to be the strength that resurrects us when our world has fallen apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
so much I could ask you and speak to you about here, just from the bits of, of, of stuff you've read. But one of the things I really liked was you said poetry gives people permission to feel seen. What What do you mean by that, David? What does it mean to give permission to people to be, feel seen? Well, I think, I don't know, Jonna, I mean, you, we shared before a little bit about your upbringing and I read that poem. I don't know if you felt a little seen in those words, even though you never wrote into me and said, can you write a poem? Yeah. Yeah. It gives you a sense you're not alone. And, uh, and it is probably one of my, my heart's cry, biggest motivation when I do write is, is I, I hope people feel seen for who they are and where they're at during this mm. time in their life that the, that the poem finds, finds them. Mm. Um, I like that. that, that be, yeah. yeah, I do. There's, there's this, I just have this thing that my book will find uh, or a poem will be shared randomly to somebody and people write to me most days and they're like, thank you. This is amazing. This is what I wanted. And, and my answer is I'm glad that it found you. I'm glad the poem found you. Yeah. I'm glad it, it came across your path. Um, for me, it's published. It's an offering and it's in the hands of God and chance and everything else. <laughs> And if it finds a person and they feel seen and it moves them to, for a moment, realize they're not alone mm. and I've granted them some words and permission to be themselves, to feel what they need to feel, it's kind of mission, mission accomplished, you know, and understanding too, some people don't like it, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, I cool. cook particularly meal. I cook curries at home a lot, curries and stews. And a couple of the people, like my two of two out of the three of my kids don't eat them, <laughs> but it's an offering. It's there if you want it, you know, it's, it's there if you want it. My poetry is the same. I feel it's there if you want it. Do you think people have been put off of poetry because of the picture we have of like maybe John Donne or Byron or, or Shelley or, you know, these people like, or even Shakespeare speaking in language that yeah. doesn't feel relevant. Do you think that's, think so. because we get that, that's what we get forced on us at school. That is what a lot of, a lot of us have learned at school. I wonder yeah. if that's what um, disenchants people about poetry. That's probably the best word, John, is disenchantment because I think poetry has within it an enchanting power mm. there is a mysticism a mystical power to stringing few words together that bypasses those kind of as C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it, it just sneaks past those sleepy dragons and gets straight into the cave of our heart yeah. and um yeah, I do think that's that is a tragedy. But I write in a free form type of poetry. I I have great respect for people who are able to write meaningful, beautiful poetry that are that's in a sonnet. Um, don't know if you know the app Clubhouse. Yeah. 
um, it's kind of like an audio social oh, yes. media yes. hangout place. And so I've joined some of these poetry rooms and there are these uh, usually um, usually African-American, you know, they're, they're all over. It's like 1 a.m. and they're reading poetry they've written that day. And it's phenomenal. It rhymes. There's a rhythm to it. There's alliteration. There's this rawness. These people uh, aren't published, won't be published. And I... I don't, I feel like, I, you know, if I play the comparison game, I wouldn't even come close. Yeah. It's just, it's like it comes out of their pores. It's phenomenal, but but that's their style, yeah. you know? And so well, um, you know, my style like suits. Benjamin Zephaniah, you know, um, who's a, I don't know. He's a British guy, Benjamin Zephaniah, but poetry, poet. Um, or John Cooper Clark. I don't okay. know if you've heard of John Cooper Clark. He was a punk poet. Um, yeah, right. And it, it was one of the, the first times I understood that poetry could be fun. Yes. A lot of his poetry brought out belly laughs because he just got it so spot on. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. I did grow up with some, you know, I'm not talking Dr. Zeus, but my dad liked Spike Milligan, so we had some Spike oh, Milligan yeah. books around. And he wrote a lot of poetry, you know. He was he was great with lyrics. Um, like I never, never realised that poetry could be fun, you know, for, for while I was at school. And I, right. I don't know if you've heard of the Scottish poet Edwin Morgan. His name rings a bell, but um, I, did I, you like him? Oh yeah, love him. But he he did a a, a poetry reading that I attended. And he did a poem called The Loch Ness Monster, and it had no words in it. He just made a load of sounds. But it was so good, you know? And I thought, this is fun. This isn't just intellectually stimulating or whatever. It's just it's just fun, you know? Um, let, me, let me read you, like, this one, this poem is literally, like, nearly 500 years old is from St. John of the Cross, right? He was kidnapped and imprisoned because he, for the reforms of the, the Carmelite movement, right? So mm -hmm. he he got beaten during this, this time. This one's called, I cobbled their boots. How could I love my fellow men who tortured me? One night I was dragged into a room and beaten near death with their shoes, striking me hundreds of times in the face, scarring me forever. I cried out for God to help until I fainted. That night in a dream, in a dream more real than this world, a strap from Christ's sandal fell from my bleeding mouth. And I looked at him and he was weeping and spoke. I cobbled their boots. How sorry I am. What moves all things is God. Oh. That night in a dream, in a dream more real than this world, a strap from Christ's sandals fell from my bleeding mouth. And I looked at him and he was weeping and spoke. I cobbled their boots. How sorry I am. What moves all things is God. I mean, 
to live with a revelation and to have encountered mm. the Jesus weeping because all good things come from God and maybe that's their boots. If Christ is in all things, he was in the cobbler who cobbled the boots that he was kicked in the face with. I mean, well, that's, that's huge to try and wrap your head around. You know. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. The instant reaction is like, we bloody well shouldn't have. <laughs> I know, I know, but here's, and to, to pull that apart theologically, John, wouldn't that just take pages and pages and you'd almost have to then give reference and yeah. to put that in a few hundred words on a single page that 500 years right. later, you and I still sit here and think Christ's in all things. And he weeps. It, it, you know, it messes with you emotionally. I know. I, know. I cried when I read it. I I wept. I could it's so this is what poetry can do, right? It can take something incredibly tragic and create a masterpiece from it yeah. where it takes your breath away. It's mystery, isn't it? Yeah. It's mystery. And, and I, I'm saying that because I, I've just written a little bit here where you said, like, like many, up until things stopped going my way, I had very little room for the mysteries of God. Mm. But I only yeah. really had made space for mastery, religious mastery, to be precise. And it's that mystery of you can't answer it and you can't take it apart and in terms of, of writing and still never understand. Yeah. And it seems like we're uncomfortable with, with mystery because yeah. mystery doesn't have an answer. You know? Um, oh. No. It's true. It's, it's true. Incredible. There's one thing that... Can I ask you to read one, one more poem, David? Of course, of course. Did you read Kind of Way? Of course. This it's, is one of my favourites. It's back to that, like, mystery and not knowing and not having answers. Yeah, and we're still in our Easter weeks if we follow an Orthodox calendar. Of course, yes. Because uh, this was written... Um, before Easter a few years ago. Kind of way, it's from the wrestle. I know that you know, so I should probably confess it. Not because it's a bad thing, but because it's normal and necessary to admit you've disappointed me and continue to. Although I don't mind as much now, still there were many times I prayed, followed the rules, gave my two mites, did all the things I was told would work and others certified with charismatic conviction to do more, give more, faith more, sacrifice more, lots more, but still nothing, no breakthrough like I believed for, like I prayed for. I underestimated you. 
I wanted to believe you were containable, constrainable, and reliable in the my way kind of way. The magician, hitman, slot machine, deal maker, earth shaker, genie in a bottle kind of way. Then I recalled. Then I recalled that on a dark but necessary day, you took yourself in my kind of way in the cosmos to a cross. Then you went missing for three days and my world fell apart. All my hope exhaled a forsaken surrender and my heart broke and my dreams broke and my kind of way kind of died again. And there you were, alive and the same, but not really a resurrected form of you that even took familiar friends by surprise. And that's what you keep doing. To this day, you keep failing and disappointing me in the best kind of ways. And every time I think I've got you where I think I need you, you disappoint and disappear and turn up incognito on a familiar path at a regular meal in an average garden with a spark in your eye that demands my attention. You invite me again to put my hand in your side, embrace you and kiss you and get to know you again in a new kind of way. Wow. It's, it's everyone's journey. <laughs> I think it's, so. It's everyone's journey. I think so. Because we think we're trying to create this predictable God and he's not. And he right. doesn't do it my kind of way. <laughs> the love of God is folly, is what the French used to say, right? The love of God is... Well, it's offensive. But we've all been there, haven't we? We've all done more and given more and faced it more and sacrificed more and, and still nothing. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to believe that he was containable and constrainable. Yeah. yeah. Paul Young's kickback to that comment is, well, even if we did put God in a put God in a box, he'd actually crawl into it just to meet us there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the invitation is always to more. And um, yeah, there's a uh, there's much in that poem for me that's just become true, and I learned over time that it's true. We did after our 20s and 30s. I'm in my 40s now, but those decades in my life, and I married early, so my wife and I walked through a lot, through bankruptcy, through a whole lot of stuff. It was... Um, I still remember a time where, where I was talking to God about it, and he just said, just, just a minute, Dave, you, you call me Lord, but you keep telling me what to do. Which sounds really simple, and but I don't know. There's the stream that I belonged to. There was this thing where it's like, I'll quote this Bible verse against you, and you better do it. You know, years ago there was an evangelist called Dave Reaver. He was um, scarred by, um, I think it was napalm or some kind of thing during the Vietnam War and he, he came back scarred, you know, like burnt face, burnt hands. And I remember him 
there was a scene where he tells his story. So he's come back from Vietnam War. He's he's ugly, you know. He used to tell kids that he was some people bob for apples. He was bobbing for French fries and hot oil. I mean, he he was not a pretty man and had, and had lost everything during the war and was a man of faith, came back to the church and said, you know, held his fist up to God and said, God, you better change me. You better fix me. And he heard God say, or else, what are you going to do? Kidnap my mum? Mm. And, and I mean, I, I heard that as a teen, you know, I heard that and I was like, yeah, that's true. But like, it really becomes true when you're waving your fist and you just thinking, what am I doing? Like, as if I can twist God's arm. I'm not, I can't kidnap or extort God. Like, I want to hold your word against you. Oh, man. Um, was it someone said, um, man makes his plans and God laughs? God laughs, exactly. But I, I love um, the way you finish that. You invite me again to put my hand in your side, embrace you and kiss you and get to know you again in a new kind of way. Mm. I love that. That What a beautiful finish in, that, in a new kind of way. Just when we think we've become familiar with him, we've become familiar with his ways, you're saying, ah, but you haven't seen this yet. <laughs> you I know, right? Me this and, and here. Wow. You say that you love me. What if I looked different? Mm. What if I was a Samaritan? What if I was a homeless person? What if I was a billionaire? What if I was a prison guard with cobbled boots on yeah. kicking someone's face in what if i was the, like it just is a bizarre yeah paradox in an extreme i'm not saying he would kick someone's face in, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh definitely not but there is a sense of yeah an invitation there always for intimacy yeah. and always to discover yeah. an eternal, eternal God. Yeah. Yep. Mystery. A mystery for sure. Mm. There's so much more I, I want to ask you and talk about, but maybe we'll do it another time because I think that's a beautiful point to, to say. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, John. Love Appreciate it. With you and hearing your heart and, and listen to you read the poetry. You know, you can never, you, you can read poetry and put your own emotion and feeling and emphasis on certain parts, but to, I think when you hear the person who wrote it, reading it, you, you get a deeper sense of what the poet is trying to say with a different cadence and, and rhythm mm. that the writer puts into it. Uh, so I'm really thankful for, for hearing you read the, those I mean, I, I chose those ones simply because I really love those ones and wanted to hear you read them. <laughs> of course, not a problem. Always happy to, but, um, to read. It's been beautiful. a privilege and an honour. Thank you. I look forward to, to connecting with you a little bit more and, and chatting some more in the future. Thanks. For those listening, you can get the books on Amazon or Book Depository, all those 
all those places that books are all available in. All and if you visit world. David's website, davidtenson.com, um, yep. get more information there. And uh, if you're in Australia, I'll ship it to you. If you're not, you're out of luck. <laughs> it's too expensive. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll need to get it elsewhere. But uh, I hope they're a blessing to whoever they find. Well, David, I, I'm glad they found me. I I actually oh, bought thanks. the wrestle before I knew before you know before Felicia. So, so I said you guys should connect. Oh wow! Oh, there you go. Yes, yeah, so uh, Felicia um, edited both of my books. She. Uh, I thought that yeah. that name's so familiar, and, uh, and it's. I was, <laughs> That's it. I've got uh, this guy. <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. I'm so to glad, hear. I'm so I'm glad, glad to be with you. My pleasure, John. Thanks for your time. I know I know it's getting close to your dinner time, so I'd let you go and have your curry or your stew. <laughs> Thank you. And convince the kids to eat it. <laughs> thanks, John. Bless you, bro. Thanks, mate. Bye bye. Bye bye.